All right, are you ready to dive into God's Word today? You are? Yeah, we are starting. This is going to be fun, y'all. We're starting a new series today called You Asked For It. You Asked For It. And, um, and this is what we did. If you remember, I don't know, it's been some weeks ago, I said that I would be doing a, a message series based on topics and questions that came or come from you. And I, we, we gave you a link and put it in the app and text and all that kind of stuff that we can do. And uh, we let you ask questions and ask about topics. And now I'm in the process or have been in the process of trying to take all of those and formulate messages out of them. And it's, it's, um, for me, it's a lot of fun. And it's also a lot of fun because um, a lot of these questions, I wouldn't have guessed that these were questions. And not that they're bad questions. That's not what I mean. I just mean I wouldn't have thought, you know, you, can't, you, can't, you know how you have, I don't know, I always have an opinion about everything. You know, I mean, I always have a thought about something. And, and so I'm thinking, oh, I'm probably going to get questions about this and this. Um, and like one thing that I was so thrilled about, got a lot of questions about the Bible, how we got the Bible, that type of thing. So I, I, I think I've referenced this. I'll be doing a whole series just on how we got the Bible, <laughs> how to study the Bible. Very excited about that. Um, so I've got that series coming up. And of course, I get a lot of questions about relationships, and they're really good questions. So we're going to do a relationship series after this series. We're going to do a whole series on relationships, which you get everybody ready for the holidays. All right? I can't wait. Well, I've got a message I want to do on how to deal with difficult people. It's going to set you free. You need it before Thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, man, there's nobody in my family that's difficult, they think it's you, okay? And uh, so anyways... Um, but, but, uh, but so there's some that, and then, and then with the rest of the questions, uh, a lot of times as, as the first couple of messages that we're going to do in the series, there was kind of a concentration of different things that you feel like, okay, this has been asked several times, maybe in a different way. So this probably represents a good question that we have. And then you kind of have the experience I have as a pastor of certain questions I've been asked repetitively for years that are good questions. Um, and then there's some questions that are just really good questions, but I'm like, I could make a message out of that, but there's so many of them. Probably as we get to the end of the series, I'll just take a handful of questions a week and just try to answer the questions. But I want to be thorough with the questions because if you're not thorough, it kind of leaves it open for confusion. And that's the last thing I'd want to do is create confusion. But it's been so cool reading the questions um, and, and hearing the questions from you. And I wondered if that was what Paul was like, uh, because we know in uh, the, what we call 1 Corinthians was actually the second letter to the, the Christians in Corinth. Uh, what we know is that Paul, uh, they had, they had, sorry, yes, Paul had written a letter that they had, then they wrote back to Paul with questions. And then 1 Corinthians, he's actually answering, um, I didn't look it up, it's five or six questions because five or six times in there you see the language now concerning or I don't want you to be ignorant concerning, you know, or I'd like you to know this and so, or to know about this. And so he's answering the questions they asked. And I wonder if Paul was like, wow, I just didn't see that as a question, you know, and, and, um, and so great that we get to answer it. And so I love this type of, I love this type of teaching uh, because I really like to dig in. And what I'm going to preach about today, I've never preached about before in my life. And so never preached a sermon on this in the history of Pathway, which I'm not sure is a good thing because it's such a great question, a lot of great questions. And so uh, today, are you ready for this one? Yeah. 
Here's the question we're going to answer along with a lot of questions about it, but here's what I called. I'm just going to tell you the title and then we're going to dive in. And the title is this, Is Hell for Real? Is hell for real? Come on, somebody. I'm getting back to my Pentecostal roots. I'm going to get to preach on hell today. Amen. Because I'm telling you right now, I grew up, I don't know if heaven's real, but we preached about hell a lot. I mean, because everybody was going to hell. Narrow is the path that leads to life, but wide is the road that leads to destruction. And I can quote you some scriptures on hell. And so... uh, but I've never really preached about it, but we're going to preach about it today. We're going to answer some questions. Uh, some of the questions that we're going to answer is, is hell for real? And what's hell like? And, and then there's a great question. Does God send people to hell? Is that, is that, why, is that what God does? And, and does God want people to go to hell? Does he want some people to go to hell? Or what, what, what about that? So we're going to get to all of those questions today. It's going to be fun. So turn with me to Luke chapter 16, everybody. Luke chapter 16. And we're going to read a story that Jesus tells. And, and I want to preface this by saying, because some Bibles will say the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And your Bible may say that. It may say the parable of a rich, a rich man and Lazarus. But I, I want to start by telling you this. This is not a parable. Actually, that's wrong. If your Bible says that, we have to remember that Bible translations are, are very smart men who translate the Bible as best they can. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not here saying you should throw away your Bible if it says a parable. I'm just saying that was something the editors put in there because, by the way, many theologians believe this is a parable, but many do not, and I do not, and I'll explain why. There are three reasons why I do not believe this is a parable. Um, number one is that Jesus doesn't start by saying, or the Bible doesn't record these words, or the writer, this is Luke, Luke doesn't record these words, and he spoke this parable to them, or he told this story to them. Some, some, you know, there's, so in the Bible, there's exact equivalencies and dynamic equivalencies, okay? So your Bible was written, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. That's where we get it. The New Testament was Koine Greek or, or Alexandrian Greek. It was a common dialect of Greek. Um, and so... So that's kind of where you get the New Testament. So then the Bible translators had to take Greek and Hebrew and then put that, translate it into um, English. And they tried to translate it. So an exact equivalency is an attempt to translate. A dynamic equivalency many times is an attempt to interpret. Translation and interpretation are not the same. Translation is, I'm not putting any of my opinion or thought in it. I'm just trying to put it word for word. The UN does not have interpreters. They have translators because they don't want foreign policy being left to the way a specific person may think, and they translate it wrong. Does does that make sense? So so an exact equivalency, like a King James, New King James, uh, English ESV, um, New American Standard, American Standard, those are more exact equivalencies where they really try to go word for word. And then dynamic equivalencies are like New Living Translation, um, you know, the, the, obviously the message or the Living Bible, you know, because like King James is, and, and he spake this parable unto them. You know, the message translation is like, he put it on his Instagram. You know what I mean? It's a little bit different. It's a little different. I'm just kidding. 
Um, but those are, they tend to lend a little bit more towards in, interpretation. I'm not saying you should stop reading them. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying you should throw them away at all. I, I personally, when I'm studying um, for a message, typically whatever text I preach from, I will read it from usually between five and 10 different translations of the Bible. Um, because even though I may know, I, I, I may even think, and then I have a really cool Bible software where I can put it back in the original language and literally go word for word and get a definition, an English definition for every Greek word. And if I have any doubt on what the pastor's saying, I'll actually do that. I'll go back to a, you know, a lexicon and just go word by word and I'll write my own translation. And, and the reason I do that is because I, I, I want to, I'm sure I'll say something and I'm sure, I know in the history of preaching for 20 years, I have said some things that were wrong, but I want to do it very few times, if at all. And I want to be as accurate as I can. Does that make sense? And I want to make sure that, that is, that anything I'm representing as truth in the word of God is as best I could understand represent as truth in the word of God and that I don't, that I don't mess it up. Right, because I understand what the Bible says. Those who speak desire something great, because they will be judged at a different standard. So when I stand before God, I don't want to be like, "Oh, I totally screwed that up." Like I know I missed some things, but I tried real hard. But I don't want to miss many, if at all, when it comes to trying to to tell you what the Word of God says. So having said that, um, some Bible translators will say this was a parable. They'll put the little caption, but that's that's not even usually the translators. That's usually done by the editors. Right, so the so it wasn't even the the translator may not have thought it was a parable, but the editor when they put the Bible together said, "Oh, this was a parable," and so I found and I, I looked in five different versions, and a couple of them call it a parable, and some of them do not. Here, three back to the three reasons why I don't believe it's a parable. Number one, it doesn't say and he spoke this parable, or he told this story. It doesn't give that language. Number two, there's no similes or metaphors. It's not like the kingdom of heaven is like. You know, that kind of thing. And number three, and this is probably the most convincing, when it's talking about the rich man, it calls, he says, and a certain rich man. Now that in and of itself is not enough because there are parables where, where the language and a certain, like the prodigal son, a certain man had two sons. But when you see that combined with the fact that he uses a man named Lazarus's name, there are no other parables where Jesus uses names. He'll say there was a shepherd who had lost a sheep. There was a widow. This is all Luke 15. The, the, in fact, the chapter preceding is Luke 15. There are three parables. A shepherd who had lost a sheep. It doesn't say Bob who lost a sheep, right? It says a shepherd who lost a sheep. A, a widow who had lost a coin. It doesn't say Samantha who had lost a coin. And then it says a man who had two sons. It says a man. It doesn't say James who had two sons. But when you get one chapter later, Luke 17, and Luke is recording this, then Luke says this, there was a, a certain rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. By the way, this is not Lazarus of Bethany. There are several Lazarus in the Bible. This is not Lazarus of Bethany, um, which is brother of Mary and Martha, the one that Jesus raised from the dead in John 11. It's a different one, okay? And so when we look at this, I want you to understand, Jesus is eternal. So Jesus existed before the creation of the world, 
right? We know that the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Well, you can't slay someone you don't have, so obviously Jesus is eternal in that he is part of the triune Godhead, and so he existed before. And so, so what Jesus then is telling us, so Jesus existed all through the Old Testament. In fact, there are sightings of Jesus in the Old Testament. We call them Christophanies, uh, but that's Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes to earth, Right in a physical body, we see that in the in the New Testament, Matthew, you know, in the Gospels when he's born. Having said that, I think Jesus is telling us something he he watched because he he's you know they're they're asking questions and he's preaching and he's like, there was this rich man and this man named Lazarus. Let me explain their story, and I think he's actually telling us something. Remember, he's eternal. I think he's telling us something he saw, and so with that, we're in Luke. Luke chapter 16, verse 19, it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously. Oh, come on, somebody. That just, when you say that word, that's, that's a good word. Some of you needed a good word today. And the word is after this, you're going to feast sumptuously. Okay? And it may be fried chicken, but it can be sumptuously, you know, or sumptuous. Sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked the sores. Like, <laughs> Jesus is kind of graphic, y'all. You know what I'm saying? The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Some versions call this Abraham's bosom, which is kind of a theological terminology describing, and we'll, I'll, we'll get back to that. So Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment. So that's hell, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into the place, this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Time out. So this is, Moses and the prophets would have been, in other words, he's saying they have the Bible. Because you have to understand, this is the life of Jesus, so we don't have the New Testament so many times what was referenced was the law and the prophets or Moses and the prophets. When they say Moses, they're talking about the first five books of the Bible because those are all credited as having been written by Moses, right? So the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, right? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, okay? Written by Moses, right? And then the prophets, there's actually 17 prophetic books um, there's 12 that are minor prophets and five that are major. If you want to go to Bible school today and you want to, if you, if you need to take, pass your Old Testament survey class and they're going to ask you how the Old Testament is broken up and you've got to name all the books, if you'll just remember 512, 5, 5, 12, you can pass, right? It's five books of the law, 
12 books of history, five books of poetry, five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. That's how you, that's how you get through it. Because what's going to happen, you're going to do pretty good until you get to those minor prophets. And then you're going to have to remember Obadiah. Right? Like, when's the last time you heard a good sermon series from Obadiah? So, anyways, 5.12, So he's talking about the five books of the law that, that, are, that Moses wrote. And then the 17 prophetic books. And, and so here's what he says. And he said, no, no father Abraham, but if someone goes, so he said, they have the Bible, they have the law and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. All right. So we're going to talk about this is hell for real. We better ask for help, y'all. God, today as we open this Bible, God, we are opening the breath of God, the words of God. God, it's, it's, these are yours. These are living words. These are, these are not, just, this is not just ink on a page. God, this is your breath. These are your words. God, as we open it today, we pray the Holy Spirit would teach us. The Holy Spirit would teach us. God, you'd help us understand what we need to understand, that we would hear you today. God, don't let us miss this moment in your presence. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. All right, so let's talk about this. Um, three things that we're going to talk about today, three points. You can write this down. Number one, death is not the end. Death is not the end. It's where we have to start the conversation because a lot of people, this is a question with not just people in our church. This is a question with a lot of people. Is death really the end? What happens after we die? Is there an afterlife? These are questions that honestly have, have intrigued curiosity and people have, have contemplated for years and years and years. In, in the passage we just read, which is Jesus, and that's why I wanted to use that. In fact, Jesus talks a lot about hell, but, but I wanted to use his words um, because I figure he's an authority on it. Does that make sense? And so, so what Jesus tells us, I mean, think about this. What we just read, verse 22, it says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And everything else we read after that is after they died. So we started like at verse 19. Three verses in, it tells us who they are and they died. And the other 10 verses or so that we read is all what happens after they die. And so Jesus, I, I, I could say this, Jesus is making a very clear point for us right here. He's making a clear point that there's things that happen after you die. Death is not the end. And we could even say this from the text. He's telling us that there's a good place and a bad place. There's a place you want to go and a place you don't want to go, which we would know as heaven and hell. And, and the reason I say this is incredible to me because, because in the world in which we live, this is so debated. And, and, and I understand believers. I understand new... I, like, like if you haven't been saved long, if you've never studied this, like I have all grace in the world. I think these are great questions. I'm excited to answer these questions. I'm amazed at people who have studied the Word of God, who are preachers, who are theologians, and, and yet still are unclear on this. In, in fact, I, I read some, some surveys, if you will, 
Don't you always like that? Would you like to hold and take a survey? Why would I waste my life waiting to take a survey? But anyways, um, Pew Research, this is what they said, 81% of people believe in an afterlife. I'm like, okay, that's pretty good. So, so eight out of 10 people believe death is not the end, right? That's pretty, 22 out of 10 people believe death is the end. There's nothing out there. But, but eight out of 10 believe. But then this was interesting. Only 58% believe in a literal hell. So, so there are 80, you know, you got eight out of 10 people, but only five and a half out of 10 or so believe in a literal hell. But then this is even more interesting. But out of the same group, 71% believe there's heaven. So there are people who believe there's heaven, but there is no hell. There are people that believe there is no heaven, there is no hell, right? 80% even believe there's, there's something out there. But then I did, this was a great survey. It's about 10 years, it's a 10-year-old survey, but I couldn't find another one. Um, but this was interesting. Uh, it's kind of by denomination. So, and again, we're not knocking any denomination. We are, I would say we are interdenominational, meaning we have people from all these denominations from our, in our church, et cetera. So I'm just giving you the survey, okay? So I'm not, this is in no way a denominational statement. That's my point. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, but, interesting survey, 35% of Baptists do not believe in hell. 54% of Presbyterians do not believe in hell. 58% of Methodists do not believe in hell. 60% of Episcopalians do not believe in hell. And then this, to me, was the most staggering in this survey. 71% of seminary students in the eight leading seminaries of the United States do not believe in hell. Because they're going to be the people preaching the word of God or teaching the word of God. And seven out of ten of them do not believe in hell. To me, that's, I was shocked. I'm, because, and, and here's the thing. I, I don't know what they teach in seminaries all the time nowadays. When I went, we, we talked about the Bible. Because I think really, and, and again, and I understand there's a lot of different theories on the Bible, a lot of different words. So I know I, I tend to, in my simplistic way of viewing the world, I typically make things black and white, yes and no, simple. And so to me, it's, it's just astonishing to think you could study the Bible and come to the conclusion that there is no hell. Jesus, even if you just study the life of Jesus, which, by the way, if you're going to be a Christian, is important, right? There is no other way to be saved. No other name given among men whereby we must be saved, right? Jesus preached on hell 33 times. His preaching ministry was only about three years, meaning 11 times per year Jesus preached on hell. Meaning almost one sermon a month from Jesus was about hell. Most people would have not liked Jesus' church. Right? But I honestly, I thought about that and I thought, wow, because I didn't realize, and he preached on hell a lot more than he preached on heaven. And I thought about that and I was so curious. And then this is what I thought reading this, this text and realizing in my opinion, he is telling us a story or, or an account of something that he actually watched unfolding, and he watched this rich man in anguish in this pit, and I think Jesus was like, I don't want anyone to go there. 
And it was actually his compassion that said, I'm, I'm going to preach about this a lot. I want people to understand how bad it is. I want people to understand this is not where you want to go. I want people to understand you don't have to go there. I mean, I think Jesus is very compassionate. He's like, I don't want anyone to go to hell. Not, not only did Jesus preach about 33 times, there's 167 references to hell in the Bible. 167 times the Bible talks about hell. Now, I could use hell, Hades, Sheol, the pit, fire, outer darkness. I mean, those are all different references, but they're all talking about hell. And so, so I, I think we have to understand from the Bible perspective, the Bible actually talks a lot about hell. It doesn't have to be a debatable issue or a debated issue. We can settle it. Like hell is, is for real. Um, here, here's what I like to say. There, in, in my opinion, I'm going to give you my opinion. I'm gonna, in my opinion, you cannot believe in heaven and not believe in hell. The same Bible talks about both of them. Jesus talked about both of them. And in my opinion, my opinion, to deny the existence of hell is to actually deny the goodness of the grace of God, which is sent to redeem and rescue us from hell. Because if I say there's no hell, then why did Jesus come? If all good people go to heaven, why did Jesus come? Right? So when you think about it, when someone says, well, I don't believe in hell, here's what I think they're saying. I don't believe in Jesus Christ. I don't believe he was necessary or needed. Just letting you know what I think. When, when the Bible talks about, so, so if, you, and if you go to Bible school, you can take these classes. You have classes on eschatology. Eschatology, anytime you have an ology, that's a study, right? And we're studying something. So, right? So it's the study of, so it's the study of esca. <laughs> es, esca. But uh, eschatology, all that is, is the study of the end. Like what happens at the end or what happens after death? Like how does, what all happens? Interesting enough, the Bible talks about a lot of events that happen after the end or at the end. In other words, at the end of life, when time here is done, right? When the clock, when the play clock hits zero and it's over, the Bible actually gives us a lot of things that are going to happen. Um, let, let me kind of walk you through. Now, here's what you need to know about eschatology. When you're talking about it, there are a lot of, let me just say this, there are a lot of people a lot smarter than me that have eschatological views, okay? And, and they can argue this and they can argue that. And there is some of it, in fact, there's a lot that is debated because it's not 100% clear because you're talking about people, because all good eschatology, by the way, is based on the Bible. Um, please don't go to TikTok for your theology, Okay, TikTok is not a theological resource. And let me just remind you, and I mean this with all sincerity, anyone, just because they have influence, let me say it another way, or fame, does not mean they have a, a theology that is accurate, or, nor does it mean what they say is the truth or the gospel, no matter how sincere they may actually be. So I'm not saying they're not being sincere, but what's happened in our culture is our culture is a fame crazy and everybody that's famous gets on their social media. Now everybody has a platform for their own personal views or they get on TikTok, they get on Instagram and they're sharing like, well, here's this and here's this. And you need to understand any theology that is not based solely 
on the word of God is dangerous. And any eschatology that is not based solely on the word of God is dangerous. And just because they're famous and have followers does not mean they know what they're talking about. And this is what our culture has done. We've raised people up. And by the way, let me, and I, I want to be very careful how I say this. Let me, let me say this. There are people who I, I think are doing wonderful things in the body of Christ, but they've been raised up quickly. They have no education. They haven't spent their life studying the word of God and reading. And now they've been thrust out there. And, and not that I don't think they're doing a good job or something like that, but you have to be careful. That doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. It means they're famous. And I don't know if you've ever, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, I think we could all talk about a lot of famous people that didn't know what they were talking about. Right? Because we've seen them interviewed on late night. We're like, boy, he's crazy. Right? So let's not get our theology. Let's go to the Word of God. Now, having said that, you need to understand, the Bible was, what, it's been, <laughs> it's been written a while. Right? And so when you're talking about the Bible, all the writers in the Bible are writing about the end when the end hasn't come. Right? So, so now you're talking about they're writing what the Holy Spirit revealed to them or what they're seeing. So, so not that the Bible's not accurate. It's accurate, but it leaves itself for some interpretation. Think about John. John is seeing Jesus, and it's like, well, what did Jesus look like? Well, I don't know. It's like his hair was, was this way and his eyes were like fire and he had a sword coming out of his mouth. I'm telling you right now, when Jesus shows up, he's not necessarily going to have a literal sword sticking out of his mouth and his eyes are not going to be flames. But John's trying to use his language to describe something that he doesn't have language for, right? Like a three-year-old when he tries to tell you about his day. Well, uh, uh, it, like it, you know, and you're like, you know, but he doesn't have the vocabulary to tell you about his day, so you got to work with him just a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Well, with John, he's seeing these things that are too great to imagine, and he's trying to put just language, right? And, and so, so that's why then we're studying it, and that's why it lends itself to different interpretations of what certain things meant. So having said that, there are some things, though, that are clear in Scripture. Now, I've I'm going to be careful here because I don't want to offend anybody. So today I'm not trying necessarily to give you my views on eschatology. Most people in Christian, well, most Bible, most Western Christians, that'd be a good way to say it, because it's not this way around the world. Most Western Christians believe in the rapture of the church. Ironically, it's mostly just Western Christians that believe that. So what is the rapture of the church? I'm not saying there's not one. I, Lord, I said something like this one time and a guy left the church. He's like, I believe in the rapture of my church, uh, rapture of the church my whole life, and you're telling me there's not one. I'm like, I'm not telling you there's not one. I'm just telling you the word is not actually in the Bible. That's I'm because I think you need to know that, right? And he said, Well, I grew up believing this my whole life, and I said, Well, I grew up believing fat man with a beard came down my chimney and brought presents one time a year, but that wasn't true just because I believed it my whole life, you know, until I was seven. So just because you believe something doesn't make it true. You need, to, you need to know a little bit more than this is what I've been told. This is why I've told you from the beginning of the church. I've said, don't just take what I say. Don't just take what I say. Go get your Bible and find out if what I'm telling you is in the Bible. Find out for yourself. 
So if you believe in the rapture, I'm not saying whether I do or I don't, just saying if you believe in the rapture, um, the rapture of the church is, is when Jesus comes for, but not to, meaning Jesus comes for the believers, but it's not necessarily his return to the earth. Does that make sense? In other words, and we get this from Matthew 24, and these are the words of Jesus, by the way, Matthew 24, where Jesus said, there were like two in a field, one was taken, one was left. There were two women, one was taken, one was left. There's, there's great scriptural, by the way, I, I'm not knocking it because I, I can take the Bible and show you what I would call the rapture of the church from scripture. I can do it. What I can also tell you is the rapture of the church is not actually in scripture. And it's actually the word rapture was, a, was just one word taken from a commentary by Schofield from the, the book of Daniel. And that's where the whole doctrine came from, right? I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying you, these are things I think you need to know, right? Because sometimes we're like, no, I believe this. Well, why do you believe it? Well, because somebody told me. That's not a good reason to believe things. I heard it on TikTok. Well, Lord have mercy. Read it on the internet. Well, if it's on the internet, it's got to be real. Okay, so... So where the rapture is concerned, there's, there's two things that coincide. There's the rapture and then the tribulation. Now, the tribulation is talked about. It's talked about by Jesus. Um, it's talked about by Daniel. It's in the book of Revelation. And the tribulation is a seven-year period. It's broken down mostly by the weeks that Daniel talks about, I think, in Daniel chapter 9. Um, and then Jesus talks about a great tribulation. And what, most, what many Western theologians believes that the tribulation is a seven-year period because, and it has, there's a lot of reasons why I can't, I'd love to just teach all this, but it's a lot, and I'd probably mess it up anyway, but there's a seven-year period, and tribulation means trial, trial or tribulation, and so it's, it's like a, a, a purifying of the saints by fire, essentially, it's, and, or, or a, or what, a lot of, well, okay, when you're talking about the rapture, so you have rapture and tribulation, there is the pre-tribulationalist, the mid-tribulationist, and the post-tribulationist. What that means is there are those that believe the rapture takes place before the tribulation. There are those that believe it takes place three and a half years in before the great tribulation. And there are those that believe that, that the rapture actually is after the tribulation. So depending on how you view that, because some people think all the, all the believers will be taken out, and then the tribulation is a chance for people still to come to repentance by giving their life for the gospel after Jesus has taken the believers away, okay? And, and that kind of is applied again to mid-trib and then post-trib, they, it's seen differently, right? So post-trib is more, this is the battle of Armageddon, right? And so, um, so depending on how you, <laughs> how you view that, you're like, I don't know how I view that. Great, go find out. Um, but how you, how you view that, then there are some people that believe, you know, and, and where they get that is like I said, Matthew 24, where Jesus says two will be there, one taken, one left. Um, also first Thessalonians four, um, is a big verse that's used here where it says, you know, then, then the Lord shall descend with the, the cry of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then which we are alive and remain will be caught up together and so into the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. So the way that verse then is viewed is just as I was read, they're caught up into the air. So this is Jesus coming for the saints, but not coming to the earth. Does that make sense? So that's, that's the rapture, the tribulation. Those things are, are very 
much um, debatable um, as to how people work them out, right? Then, but one thing there, this factual that just about everyone has in their eschatology is the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming again. However you view that, whether it's a rapture, he's coming for the saints and then he's coming to the earth, or whether he's just coming to the earth. And we know that from Zechariah 14, Matthew 25, or Matthew 24, Jesus said, Son of man is coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. All right. And so then what, what we believe or or know is that Jesus had this second coming. Most people believe that's going to be the battle of Armageddon, which kind of the good guys and the bad guys, Jesus and the Antichrist, and clash, you know, in this cosmic thing, you know, that happens. And, and, um, and the battle of Armageddon, by the way, is in the Bible. It's in Revelation chapter 16, talks about it, as well as Zach, most people believe Zechariah 14 is also talking about it. Um, and then after the second coming is what is called the millennial reign of Christ. So there's a thousand year reign. This is Revelation chapter 20. If you want to just jot these down. Uh, the millennial reign of Christ is, is essentially where, where we believers are going to reign with Jesus on the earth. So if you're a rapture person, you think we're going to be caught away or you believe we're going to be caught away. And then when it's time, we're going to return with Jesus to reign on the earth. If you're not a rapture person, Jesus is going to come again. There's going to be a clash and you know, Armageddon battle, whatever. Then we're going to reign with Jesus on the earth. In the millennial reign, by the way, and, and this is why we get the battle of Armageddon and stuff, Satan's going to be bound for this thousand-year reign. It's, it's, it's very clear. That's, I mean, some of this is just verbatim word for word in your Bible, but Revelation tells us he will be bound for a thousand years. What's crazy to me is after a thousand years, Satan is released, and he still, the Bible says, deceives the nations. Essentially, he leads people in rebellion against God, meaning the believers who have been reigning with Jesus for a thousand years, Satan is so deceptive, he gets them to betray God again. It's, it's, it's just it's incredible. Um, and then at the end of the millennial reign is the final judgment, this judgment. And your Bible talks about two judgments. Most people are, are not familiar with this. There are two judgments in Scripture. There is a believer's judgment and a non-believer's or an unbeliever's judgment. And so um, the believer's judgment, Paul said, we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that's what theologians call that one, the judgment seat of Christ. Then John in Revelation said, I saw a great white throne and the earth gave up its dead. And then the books were opened and the book of life was opened. And those who did not find their name in the book of life were then sentenced. Um, and so that is the judgment for those who are not of faith in Christ, who don't have faith in Christ. So, so now is it, now this is a great question because I've gotten this question before. It's such a good question. If we're all believers, why are we judged? Why do believers go to a judgment? Like I thought this was about grace. Isn't that a great question? And if they're all unbelievers, why do they go to a judgment? I mean, it's already been determined, Right? Here's the great thing. I'm going to answer that question in this series. I'm going to tell you. Yeah, not today, though. I'm not going to tell you today. <laughs> not going to tell you today because I want to talk about it. Right? So there's the final judgment. And then Scripture, this is um, Revelation 21. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah 66 also references this. But this is where God makes all things new, and there's a new creation. So all of these events 
or eschatology. These are all, many of these things, if not all, if you think about how you see the rapture and the second coming, but they all happen after the end. They all have all these events, thousand-year reign, happen after the end. And think about this. Think about this. Because we are so fixated on our life now. And if we're lucky, maybe we'll live 90 to 100 years. Well, just a very small part of eternity is the millennial reign of Christ. It's a very small part. And it's 1,000 years. Maybe we should be a little more focused. We're going to spend a lot more time in eternity. Yes. See, we, we, this is what we think. We think we're currently having a temporary physical experience, and someday we're going to have a spiritual experience. But the truth is, we are spiritual beings who are currently having a very small, simple, short physical experience. And then eternity starts. And eternity is a long time compared to 90 years, right? Maybe we should be asking these questions. Maybe we should be studying these things. And so this is the first thing we have to know is death isn't the end. Here's the second thing. Hell is real. Just to answer the question, hell is real. Luke 16, Jesus is talking, and he's talking about heaven and hell. And, and, and Jesus tells us heaven's real and hell's real. And then, then the question is, well, what's hell like? Well, Jesus gives us some clues here. Because he uses the word flame, meaning fire. Most people, you know, kind of combine the idea, if you will, or correlate hell with flames. Have you been to the production of Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, so fire. Um, in fact, Jesus uses some connotation of flame or, 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 or fire, some, some inference of that 19 times. And in Matthew 18 and Matthew 25, he talks about everlasting fire. And so we're talking about hell, fire's real. Remember, I don't know, it's been around forever because I think it's just, you know, kind of the, the thing people say. And it's really the devil who started. But, oh, man, I, you can go to hell with all your friends. It's going to be a party. <laughs> not going to be a party. I mean, it's not the best theology, but do y'all remember the Newsboys before Michael Tate was in the Newsboys? Where are my 90s Christians? Did any of y'all 90s? And we snuck out to go to the concert because we really were only supposed to go see the Gaithers. But um, <laughs> nothing wrong with the Gaithers. Praise the Lord, sweet Beulah land. Okay, but, um, but um, remember before Michael Tate, Michael Tate was in D DC Talk with Toby Mac. Do you guys remember this? The nine o'clock did not, rem I had to educate them. Thank God y'all are with me. I'm like, how could you not know? These were a few of the bands we were like, you've never heard Jesus Freak? I mean, like, and, and half the nine o'clock didn't know what Jesus Freak was. I'm like, we're opening worship with Jesus Freak next weekend. Yeah. And like Duncan Smith, if you've ever been to the concert, they make the drum cage swirl upside down. We're doing that next weekend. You bring a friend. It's going to be awesome. You know what I'm saying? Anyways, but, um, but before... So there was the Newsboys in DC talk, and then Michael T Toby Mac went on his own. Michael Tate became the lead singer of Newsboys. But before Michael Tate, they had this song, and it, it theologically is somewhat correct. It's just not very deep because it would say something like, "When the toast is burned and the something's turned, and Captain Crunch is waving farewell, when the big one finds you, let this song remind you that they don't serve breakfast in hell." Yeah, it's true. They don't serve breakfast in hell, as a matter of fact. They don't at all serve breakfast in hell. It's, it's a little worse than going without breakfast. You know what I'm saying? But um, 
Uh, anyways, and so hell is real, and it really is hot, and it's not a party. In fact, Jesus uses this word four times in this, these verses we read. Four times Jesus calls it a place of torment. Now, the word he uses for torment in the Greek has three different definitions. So it could be any one of these three or maybe all three. The first definition for torment is acute pain by an uncurable disease. The second word for torment was actually a rack of torture. It was a torturous device or a device they used for torture where, where they would put, it was sharp objects sticking up and they would lay a body across it like this and then they would stretch the body around it until the, the sharp objects pierced the body. So it's actually a rack, it's a name given to a t- device, uh, torment. Um, and then the third definition was fire so hot it melts metal. So when Jesus four times in this passage is saying it's a place of torment, I think if we look at those definitions, which one do you want? The acute pain from an incurable disease, the rack of torture, or fire so hot it melts metal? None of those do I want. Like, is there a fourth one, Jesus? You know, where do you get ice cream? That's, I'm wondering, you know, like anything else. So Jesus is very clear This is not, I think that's why he's talking about, I don't want you to go here. I don't want you to go here. Three things that we see from from the rich man is number one, agony. He said, I'm in anguish. And it was so bad that, think about this. He didn't say, could someone dump water on me? Or even could someone give me a a big bottle of water? He said, "Could, could Lazarus just touch his finger in water and touch that to my tongue? He's saying, it's so bad that one drop of water would feel like relief. I mean, it's, it's a place of anguish. Then it's a place of fear because he starts being fearful of other people going there. He has to spend his eternity wondering, do my brothers go there or not? In fact, he said, could you please send someone? I don't want, it's so bad. I don't want anyone else. No one do I want to, to end up here. And then it's a place of heartbreak because Abraham said, well, if they don't believe in Moses and the prophets. And so it's the heartbreak of realizing they're not going to believe. Just like I didn't believe. They're not going to believe. In fact, he goes on to say, they wouldn't believe. And I think Jesus is talking. Here's what he said. If they wouldn't believe the Bible, they wouldn't believe if I sent someone who was raised from the dead. Here's what Jesus said. Even if I raise myself from the dead and tell them they won't believe. It's incredible. But this person's in anguish. They're they're fearful. They're in heartbreak. Now, here's what you need to understand. This is a great one. This is all before the cross. So when when we're talking about heaven and hell, you have to understand there is a a pre-heaven and hell and a post-heaven and hell. In other words, there was what we know as heaven and hell before the cross and what we know as heaven and hell after the cross. Let me explain. So there is only one way to be saved, Jesus Christ. So what about Abraham, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Deborah, Samson, all these people who Hebrews tells us died in faith not having received the promise? Where did they go? They couldn't go to what we know as heaven now. Why? Because you have, to, you have to be born again. 
So where did they go? They went to a place, in our text, the ESV calls it Abraham's side. Other versions call it Abraham's bosom. There was a place of waiting for everyone who died before the cross. So there was a pre-hell in Abraham's bosom. Some people call it Hades in Abraham's bosom. And so in Abraham's bosoms where all the saints of the Old Testament were held, What's just so you know, because Jesus actually tells the man on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. But notice he said, you'll be with me. See, you can't go to the presence of God without faith in Jesus. You got to be saved, right? And so, so Jesus is telling him there's a different place now. And Colossians tells us that Jesus, before he ascended, descended, and he went into the underworld, if you will. And the Bible says he led captivity captive, meaning he preached the gospel to the saints who had died in faith, not having received the promise. And they were able to say, yes, you're the Messiah. And he led them then to what we know as heaven. Right? And then there's hell. There's this hell. So he's describing this place of waiting. But then there are other pictures of what hell after the cross looks like or for eternity looks like. And so I'll just give you a few. Number, number one, it's a place of darkness. And it's described as a bottomless pit. In fact, we see that Revelation 9, Revelation 11, Revelation 17, Revelation 20 called a bottomless pit, meaning it's dark and you're suspended. Now, why is that, that hell? Think about this. There are, two, there are two physical properties that keep you mentally stable. Two physical properties that keep you mentally stable. Light and solid. Because you have, your, your brain does not have a way to, to organize reality without light and solid. Um, when I was, I told you this story one time, but I went scuba diving because I'm a scuba diver. And uh, I was in Mexico and was supposed to go. I'm an open water diver. That's what my certification is in, open water diver. I do not have a cave diving certification, which is good to know for the story. Because the surf was so rough and because I had to, you, you have to wait 24 hours before you fly from, from diving to flying. You have to wait. Otherwise, you could rupture your eardrums and make yourself, get yourself in bad trouble. Uh, because, because of the time and all in the flying, um, I didn't have time to reschedule the dive. So, so the person that's taking me diving said, well, you could do a cave dive. I'm like, well, I'm not a cave diver. He's like, it'll be fine. And let me remind you, we were in Mexico. There's different rules, or maybe there are no rules. I don't know. So I'm thinking, you know, this is a problem of my personality. It's, it's a little bit better now. But back then, I was very much like, YOLO, you only live once. So I said, sure, we'll go cave diving. So we were in the cave, and you had to go through. It was a cave you went all the way through. So we were in the cave about 50 feet below the surface of water, and we had lights, and that's how you could follow each other. And then we stop in this little opening in this cave 50 feet below the water. And this person says, hey, let's all turn our lights out. Cool. We turned our lights out. I have never seen dark until that moment. There is no light. You know how you walk outside at night, like you leave a, a lit room and then you turn lights off and then all of a sudden, you know, you can kind of, you, you know, your eyes, your pupils dilate and you can kind of see. My pupils probably got bigger than my eyeballs and there wasn't anything to see. 
I mean, I was doing this, like, you know, like there was nothing to see. And then what was worse is we're floating in water. So you're suspended. And all of a sudden my brain went berserk and I didn't know what reality was. I didn't know what was up. I didn't know what was down. I didn't know if I was upside down or right side up. And then when we turned the lights back on, it didn't get any better. And my whole world was like, and then the hole started getting smaller. And I thought, this is how we die. This is how I die. Because some guy wanted us to see how dark it was down here. And what I realized is I paid that man a lot of money to take, to take me to hell. That's what I paid. I, because hell is dark and you're suspended. And I'm like, that's what that is. And I paid a lot of money to take me to hell. And I nearly, I mean, I nearly passed out. I ended up, he had a yellow tank and I focused my light on his yellow tank and swam just staring at the yellow tank. Ooh, it was bad. Anyways, but this is what, because mentally you need light and you need solid, right? There, there are two emotional properties that keep us emotionally stable. Um, rest and hope. And Revelation 14, 11 tells us that hell is not a place of rest. It's a place of torment. And think about this as far as hope. When you've spent, when a person has spent 10,000 years in hell, they are not one minute closer to getting out. There's, there is no place. It's not a place of rest. It's not a place of rest. It's, it's not a place of hope. Let, let me give you one more thing. When Jesus is talking about hell, he uses a word for hell, which gets interpreted hell, which it should be technically, but because without being a Jew, you wouldn't understood if they gave you a different name. And he uses this word Gehenna, Gehenna. It's a Greek word. And when he's talking about hell, he uses this word Gehenna. Now, every Jew would have known what Gehenna was. What Gehenna was referencing, there's a valley in Hebrew, it's called Hinnom. Um, there's a valley south of Jerusalem where they would burn refuse, trash, garbage, all that kind of stuff from the city. Um, and it was constant fire. The fire never went out. And, and that's one thing. But when there was a famine in the city and poor people passed away, they didn't bury them. They didn't have the expense and all that. They literally just took, if there was a plague or whatever, they took the bodies to this valley and threw them in the fire with the with the garbage. And so the stench then was not just refuse, but burning flesh. Now, when Jesus is talking about hell and Gehenna, it's actually a little bit more intense than that. Because when the Jews had gone into captivity in Babylon, they were exposed to a type of worship. Um, it was the God of Molech. The God of Molech was worshiped through child sacrifice. And what they would do is they would burn their children alive. What we know is two Israelite kings did this, Manasseh and Ahab. And so when Jesus says hell, but he's saying Gehenna, they're thinking about the stories they know from their history under these two ruthless and horrible kings who would actually make make their families sacrificed children to the God of Molech and they would take them to the Valley of Hinnom where there's constant fire and they would drive their children who could walk 
They would drive their children with whips into the fire. So when Jesus says Gehenna or hell is like that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, he is not making up an analogy. He is giving them history about the sounds that would come from that valley as children were crying out for help and crying out for mercy and screaming and gnashing their teeth as they were driven with whips into the fire. And he's saying that, that's hell. It's intense. But hell is real. Now here's, here's the last thing you need to know. Hell was not made for people. Because people say, well, if God, you know, if God's so good, why is there even a hell? Well, the Bible tells us actually. In fact, Jesus tells us. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal. So this is a judgment, right? This is, by the way, the, this is the great white throne judgment. But depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire prepared for not the people. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. God did not make hell for people. He did not make hell for people. Isaiah 5.14, though, tells us, essentially you can go read it, but Isaiah 5.14 actually tells us that because people continued to reject God, hell's borders or the mouth of hell had to be enlarged. In other words, hell was never made for people. It's not God's heart. God doesn't want any. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Hell was not made for people. God does not want to send people to hell. But because people reject God, hell had to be enlarged. In fact, that, that's really you know the question I get asked a lot of times. If God is so loving and so good, why does he send people to hell? Well, the question I like to ask, if God is so loving and so good, why do you reject him? I mean, the Bible is full of people rejecting God. Lucifer rejected God, and God never did anything wrong, never disappointed him. Lucifer is the first to reject. Adam rejected God. All God said is, hey, God, again, Adam's his son. He's given him all things, every tree. Just don't touch this one tree. Adam rejected God. Israel rejected God. It, Jesus came to his own, but they would not receive him. I mean, w when God is this good and this loving, it is inexcusable to reject him. In fact, and I reference this already, but the, the, the rejection of God that blows me away more than anything is after the millennial reign of Christ, after, after believers have reigned with Jesus for a thousand years and still are led in rebellion against God by Satan. It's incredible. So it's rejecting God. Ultimately, if you think about it, the re it's, it's not that God's grotesque, inexcusable judgment sends people to hell. It's that, it's that people's grotesque, inexcusable rejection of God is the question we need to debate. Like, God is good and God is loving. Th think about this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, I like, I like to kick it old King James, whosoever, that's how you know you're in King James when they put three words together. Like, nevertheless, whosoever, right? Whosoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. For he didn't send his son into the world. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
Like, like God is really, God is really that good. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul said this, while we were too weak to save ourselves at just the right time, Jesus came to save us. So the question isn't, if God is so good and so loving, then, then why in the world does he send people to hell? The question is, if God is so good and so loving, why would we ever reject him? Think about this. God is so good and he's not willing that any should perish because some people will say, well, what about those that's never heard the gospel? What about that? Well, the Bible answers it, I think. Romans 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God, this is such a great verse. What can be known about God, check this out, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, how did God show it to them? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Here's, here's what Paul is telling the Romans. He's like, hey, you can't claim you don't know about God because God has revealed himself externally to every person. He's, he's revealed his power to every person. If you've ever smelled some chocolate chip cookies baking, if you've ever heard a bird chirping, if you've ever walked barefoot through St. Augustine grass on a hot August day, you know what it is to witness the power of the creator. He is saying God has revealed himself so we were all without excuse. Because God's revealed himself externally. But then Acts 16, Luke is writing, giving us the events of the early church or the Acts of the Apostles, if you will. And he tells us God has revealed himself internally to each of us. Watch this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He's just saying we're all family because we all come from Adam. Having determined, and, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is not actually far from any of us. Here's what Luke's saying. God put something on the inside of us. Um, the word of God says we have he put eternity in the hearts of man. There is something on the inside of us that tells us there's something else. There's something after we die. That's why those 81% of people say, no, there's an afterlife. I don't know what it is, but something tells me this is not where it all ends. The grave is not the end. And so here's what the Word of God says. God has revealed himself externally to every person, and God is the one that put a conscience in you and put something in you that tells you there's something else. And this is what he said. Even though you can't see it and you don't know it, he put it in there so you would grope or search for him, and he's not far from you. This is how good and loving God is and not willing that any should perish. He has put eternity in our hearts and revealed himself in creation, creating just enough question and curiosity that would cause you to ask the question and seek him. And here's what the Bible tells us. Everyone who seeks him finds him. You will search for me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. Seek and you will find you, there is not one person who has ever sought God and God did not reveal himself to them. 
He's been trying to reveal himself to to everyone since creation. And I, I just felt like I should say this today. And even if you're a believer and maybe you're going through something very difficult, it's still the promise. If you seek God, he will reveal himself to you. He will always, listen, God is the reigning um, loser in hide and seek. He is. He is the worst person that's ever played hide and seek. Because the moment you say, ready or not, he's like, here I am, here I am. So here's the truth. Here's the truth. If God is so good and so loving, why do people go to hell? Here's the answer. God is good and loving. He's also just. He's also just. And can I tell you this? You want him to be just. You do. You want a just God. That means all of his judgments are just. Sometimes I feel like I have to remind myself, maybe you need to, that God is justice and I am not. Because Marty's justice and God's justice don't always look the same. Maybe you've never had that conversation with God, but I have a few times. Maybe you're really uncomfortable right now and not trying to tip your hand, let let us know that you have had that conversation. So you're just acting very like, oh no, I believe God's always just. For us, it's questions like, well, where were you when? And why didn't you stop? And why didn't you do this? And I'm not saying you shouldn't ask questions, but here's what you need to know. The reason people go to hell is because God's just, and we want him to be just. The word of God says the wages of sin is death. That's what the word of God said. That's the law. The wages of sin is death. The word of God also says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what sends people to hell is the law. The law that says... If you sin, you go to hell and you've all sinned. Now we want, we want this justice and I'll explain why. Could you imagine, right? Because that's the same for everybody. Could, could you imagine what this would look like if, if God was up there and he said, well, all have sinned and all go to hell, but you know what? This guy's been pretty good. I'm going I'm to let him out because I really liked how many Girl Scout cookies he bought. Or this person's really, really good because they went and helped their neighbor in a time of need. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, wait a second. Now you're saying we all have sinned but, and all have fallen short, but not all the wages are death depending on what we do. And now, without creating a standard of how much we need to do to get out of hell, now all of a sudden, God is picking and choosing who gets out of hell based on how they perform or what they do, and we don't know what the standard is. Well, that doesn't sound just to me. That sounds like he could play favorites. What if I don't do enough? And what if, I don't, what if they do more? And what? Let me tell you why you want God to be just. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely 
by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in God. Here's, here's what that just said. Remember I said the wages of sin are death? What's the second part of that verse? But the free gift of God is eternal life. Here's why you want God to be just. Because based on what I just read, it is the justice of God that, that sends someone who rejects him to hell. So if you reject God, it is you have sinned, you have fallen short, and the wages of sin is death, and it is just for you to be sentenced to hell. But what I just read right there is, if you believe in Jesus, then it's actually the justice of God that sentences you to eternal life. See, how do I know if this is good enough or that's good enough? Because this is what's different about Christianity than any other religion that is taught because every other religion is exclusive and Christianity is all including. It is, in, it is inclusive, meaning whosoever will may come and accept by faith Jesus. And now me going to heaven or not going to hell is not based on the work that I do. It is based on the work that he did and the fact that he paid for my sin. And now it's not left up to guess. Did I work enough to get there? Did I I do enough because it's not by works that anyone should boast. We are saved by grace through faith. And when I come to God and I say, God, here I am. I'm a sinner. I have sinned. I deserve death. But you offer the free gift of eternal life and I receive you as Lord and Savior and surrender my life. God's justice steps in and said, then son, you are forever sentenced to heaven. It's his justice that puts me there. So how can a good God, a loving God, send people to hell? He doesn't. He just respects their right to not choose him. He will not force himself on you. But anyone at any time can come to him and he will save them. Amen. Amen. Isn't that good? Can you give Jesus praise today? <laughs> Why don't you stand? You've got an amazing. Why don't you stand? I'm going to ask our prayer team to come. We end all of our time together with, with just prayer for anyone who needs prayer for anything. We want to pray with you. But let's bow our heads right now and, and let's ask this question. God, what are you saying to me? Would you, would you just, where you're at, bow your head and ask that question. God, what are you saying to me? And Holy Spirit, I just pray you'd speak to every person exactly what they need to hear, a word from you. And as we're listening for you, waiting in your presence, every head bowed, no one looking around. I, I couldn't preach this message and not give an opportunity for anyone to step out of hell and into heaven, if you will, to not give an opportunity for someone to, to come to Christ, to, to be forgiven, to have a relationship with God, to, to miss hell and land in heaven. 
And so with our heads bowed, no one's looking around. If that's you and you're like, I am in doubt about my relationship with God. I'm in doubt about where I would spend eternity. Would it be heaven? Would it be hell? I'm not sure. I don't feel confident or I've never accepted Christ or I need to be forgiven or I need to give God control of my life. I want a good relationship with God. Whatever it is, whatever it is, I want to pray with you. Even if you're online, if you're online, you definitely want you to participate. But no one's looking around, and if that's you, when I count to three, I just want you to lift your hand up. And you're doing that to God, not to me. You're just saying, God, this is me. This is my, my act of faith, if you will, to say, I want to be saved. Maybe you've been in church your whole life, but you've never just said, I want to be saved and forgiven. So if that's you, I want you to lift your hand. Ready? One, two, three. Just lift it up. Yeah, God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. Anybody else say, that's me. Maybe at home, I don't know. Yeah, God bless you. I want us just to pray together. I'm so excited. The Bible says that there's rejoicing in heaven when just one lost person comes to faith in Jesus. And so if you lifted your hand, those that did, maybe watched online, the Bible says to be saved, we believe in our heart that Jesus is the Lord, is Lord, and we confess it with our mouth. That's just saying, I believe Jesus is who he said he is, and I want him to be my Lord. I want him to have control of my life. I want to serve him. And so you, you don't have to use my words, but I'll give you a, a prayer as an example. You can pray it along with me or something like it, but it would be something like this. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died and rose again. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Lord, take control of my life and help me to follow you for the rest of my life. And God, I just pray as they prayed that prayer, I know, God, they've been saved, they've been born again, but I pray, God, you'd reveal yourself in a fresh way. You would guide and lead them, speak to them that they would know you intimately and closely. God, for all of us, we are just grateful that the grace of God sentences us to heaven. God, there is a hell and it's a horrible reality. Let us keep this reality as a motivation to warn people like Jesus did to not go there. Make it real to us so that we'll warn anyone who will listen that there is a real hell and you don't have to go. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God, we just pray you would use us to rescue, to speak words of life. God, that people will come to faith in you. Lord, as we leave here, guide our steps. Guide our steps, Lord. We just thank you for this time in your presence. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Come on, can you give Jesus one more praise together? God is so good. Listen, if you need prayer, if you lifted your hand, we'd love for you to come, really want you to come and just let us talk with you, make sure you understand, give you resources, whatever. If you need prayer for anything, you can come. Everyone else, we say, God bless you. We love you. And we'll see you next weekend.